We all want to drink from the same cup of justice, and it starts with learning about our legal system. With tales from the newsroom and the courtroom, journalist Liz Farrell, attorney Eric Bland, and I invite you to gain knowledge, insights, and tools to hold public agencies and officials accountable. You will love our Cup of Justice shows on the new feed. We know that our justice systems are intimidating, but we all have to encounter it at one point. Together, our hosts create the perfect trifecta of legal expertise, journalistic integrity, and a fire lit to expose the truth wherever it leads. Search for Cup of Justice wherever you get your podcast, or visit cupofjusticepod.com. I think I know who killed Maggie and Paul Murdoch. But now that Alec Murdoch has been charged in the double homicide and his bond was denied... Our work on this podcast is just beginning. We need to know who else helped the former public official get away with so much for so long. And we need to know who killed Stephen Smith. My name is Mandy Matney. I have been investigating the Murdoch family for more than three years now. This is the Murdoch Murders Podcast with David Moses and Liz Farrell. It has been another chaotic week at the Murdoch Murders Podcast and Fitz News. Before we get into the big news from the bond hearing today, we have to go over the biggest highlights from the last seven days. And there have been many. Aside from Alec Murdoch being indicted on two counts of murder, Bowen Turner officially had his probation revoked. Live 5 News reported that he will serve between 10 and 14 months in jail and he will have to register as a sex offender. And that is a big deal. Both the murder charges and Turner's sentence speak to the life-changing and historic work we are doing on this podcast. And it wouldn't be possible without the momentum behind us from you, our listeners. So thank you. But also, this week was a reminder of just how much work needs to be done to truly change the South Carolina justice system. And that was apparent in the bond hearing. Also, late on Wednesday, the first federal charges were filed in the Murdoch case against Russell Lafitte. Lafitte faces five federal counts for allegedly using his role as director and an employee of Palmetto State Bank and his role as personal representative and conservator to defraud clients of Alec, including Hakeem Pinckney. We will talk about that indictment in a later episode. Let's start with the big stuff, Alec's indictments. On Thursday, July 14th, as we expected, Alec Murdoch was indicted by a Colleton County grand jury in the double homicide of his wife Maggie and his son Paul. And I have to say it again, that is a big deal. Even though we knew this was coming, Thursday was a huge day for those of us desperately wanting systemic change in low country. Thursday's indictment sent a message. This is no longer a state run by the good old boys. This should have been a big sign indicating a new day in South Carolina. This was supposed to be the first big signal from the Attorney General's office that no one, no matter how powerful, is safe from the long arm of the law. 
Any faith we had in there being meaningful change in South Carolina was basically lost Wednesday. In short, the prosecution and defense both argued for a gag order in the case. They say it is necessary to protect Alec Murdoch's right to a fair trial, which is hilarious because that is not at all what Alec wants. He wants an unfair trial in which there is a big old fat thumb on his side of the scales of justice. It seems like this might be headed in that direction. And while we understand the arguments the prosecution made in favor of a gag order as it relates to protecting the integrity of the 81 state grand jury charges Ellick faces, and as it relates to protecting the ongoing investigations, and we'll get into all of that shortly, we still think this was a very big mistake on the part of the AG's office. So to start, prior to the hearing, the media was pretty tickled by the fact that there was a painted portrait of the elder Buster Murdoch in the back of the courtroom. They kept taking pictures of it. I was not one of those photographers because to me that portrait was a sign that the courtroom was clearly haunted. It was like a Scooby-Doo painting where the eyes followed you. Meanwhile, I'm sure the prevailing media take on it is going to be how that portrait was a stark reminder of how the noble have fallen. Truly, that hearing was a full and ghostly regression into the past. Alec Murdoch basically walked into that courtroom wearing a crown and a giant pin that said Grandpa's Boy on it. Just like Paul Murdoch's boat trial, it was hard for us to tell whether there was even a prosecutor in the room. Prior to the start of the hearing and throughout it, Dick Harputlian commandeered the room. He routinely crossed the line into Creighton Waters' half of the courtroom and spoke from that position. When both men teamed up to tell the judge that it would be super cool to keep the public in the dark about this case, it literally seemed like Dick was having one of those proud, take your son to work day moments. Creighton has so far proven himself to be a true professional, very capable, serious, no nonsense, and like someone who wouldn't let Dick Harpulian hang him from his locker. So it was incredibly disappointing to see him play small. He isn't going to like hearing this, but I had to re-listen to the audio from the hearing just to make double sure that he was referring to Alec as the defendant and not my lord. I say this because Mandy and I were both incredibly suspicious about why Alec was agreeing to a bond hearing in the first place. He's already being held on a $7 million bond that he can't pay. He appears to have waived his subsequent bond hearing, so why go through with this one, the murder one? Why was he going to put himself in a situation in which the prosecution would likely reveal some of his more evil behaviors? Now, you might be thinking, guys, this man has had no shame so far. Why would he care now? So yeah, he's been a total embarrassment to his family, right? But this is different. This isn't just him being a lying doof. That hearing could have very well revealed details about what went on behind closed doors in the Murdoch house. And that is a very clear line the Murdochs don't cross. So why agree to the hearing? Well, it's obvious now. That hearing was not actually about whether Ellick should be granted a bond on his murder charges. It was an opportunity for Dick to gather all the journalists covering this case into one room so he could symbolically throw his arm around the prosecution's shoulders, make his big chest move, and then wink at us. Or wink at me, anyway. Oh yeah, guys, he winked at me on his way out of the courtroom. I think it's been a while since he's winked at anyone because he almost had to get Jim Griffin to help him get his eyelid back up. But enough about that. We've said it so many times. Good old boys cannot operate in the light. 
The Murdoch family specifically cannot operate in the light. They have always needed the darkness. They need for there to be no public scrutiny, and it looks like they could be getting their wish. We were told going into the hearing that there would be details revealed in this court proceeding that would fill the large information voids in this case that only work for the defense. So the big question everyone seemed to have between 9 and 10 a.m. today was, is the family there? The answer is no, they were not, which is even further proof that the prosecution got dick and jimmed because in a case like this, if the family is supporting the defendant, then now would be the time to be public about it, to show the judge that they believe in their guy, to show that they're a united front against these unjust accusations, etc. Ellick's family, from what it seems, is supporting him for now. John Marvin keeps saying he just wants the truth. According to Creighton, the victims were watching the hearing remotely, but who are the victims? I'm asking that seriously. To me, it would be Buster and it would be Maggie's side of the family. But who knows at this point, right? We don't know who's supporting Alec and who isn't. We don't know who believes he's innocent and who has their doubts. I get why they wouldn't want to be in the courtroom, but not knowing who the victims are is very odd. And that's why this was a surprisingly empty courtroom for such a high-profile case. It was mostly media there, and let us just say this, yes, we can be critical of the media, specifically the ones who aid the devils and help perpetuate corruption. But this makes our point. No matter how we feel about particular stories or headlines, the media is a critical stand-in for the public. We are there to tell the public what's happening. We are there to help hold the system accountable to the people it purports to serve. Like I said, the media showed up today. By blocking the media from court matters moving forward, Creighton and the Bulldogs are burning down an important bridge. So now the hearing. All right. Honorable your Honor, it's my understanding that they do want the formal arraignment, but are waiving reading of the indictments. That's so, correct, Your Honor. All right. Uh, Richard Ellen Murdoch, if that is your name, please raise your right hand. Do you waive reading of the indictments? Yes, sir. What say you, Richard Ellen Murdoch, are you guilty or not guilty of the felonies wherein you stand indicted? Not guilty. You see, the bond hearing took a turn from a court proceeding about whether or not Alec Murdoch would be getting bond on the murder charges, which had zero chance of happening, to a hearing about whether both sides agreed on keeping public information away from the public. I uh, also very quickly want to thank my SLED agents. We have uh, Special Agent Dave Owen present, who's been one of the lead case agents on this. Uh, and I want to uh, commend them on the uh, long and arduous investigation over 13 months in which every possibility was considered uh, before uh, the evidence, as we explored every possibility, all came back to one person, and that is uh, Alec Murdoch. Uh, I'm happy to detail some of the facts for your honor. However, uh, the defense has advised me uh, that they are willing to consent to a no bond. Uh, so I'll leave that to your honor's discretion. Right off the bat, Dick Harpootlian came out swinging and appeared to be in command of the courtroom. Your Honor, we're consenting to uh, no bond. He's already, as you know, already has a $7 million bond he can't make. Um, and um, the further discussion of the alleged facts in this case in an open courtroom, we think, continues to uh, run the risk of polluting the jury pool, which and in a moment, I think we can talk about a speedy trial in this matter, which will occur in this courtroom. So we don't believe there's any reason to go any factual background. He's agreeing to no bond. 
And then, Prosecutor Creighton Waters made a surprising move. The Creighton Waters we have seen before in other proceedings was fierce and completely unfazed by Harputlian and his games. But Waters today appeared to be caught off guard. Even his body language was visibly weak. And then, in a rare move, the prosecution brought up a gag order in the case. And they said that they agreed to it. And Your Honor, very quickly, I'm going to just add that we have, of course, uh, consulted uh, with the victims in this matter. Our victim advocate is present, and some of the victims, in my understanding, are joining uh, through uh, the remote procedure. I just wanted to make sure that was on the record. Well, Your Honor, you know, there's a few motions I know that, that Mr. Harputlian and I have discussed. Uh, one of the first uh, motions uh, that has been discussed is a gag order. Uh, the state has no objection to a gag order. Or Mr. Harputlian uh, discussed it with me, and uh, we, we do agree that that would be appropriate in this matter, given the amount of media attention. Uh, this case, as I've been saying all along at various bond hearings along the way, uh, needs to be tried in the courtroom. And uh, so the state has no objection to that. Gag orders are drastic remedies, and you don't see them a whole lot. When they're put in place, it's in the name of protecting the integrity of a fair and impartial trial. But like we've said a hundred times, that right there is the issue itself. History has shown us that the Murdochs are a family who have been afforded great latitude when it comes to the law. So how can we, the public, be assured that everything is actually fair and impartial if we can't see what's happening? The state should want to show the public that everything is above board here. They should want to make a good faith effort to show that there are no special favors happening here. Well, yes, Your Honor, and another aspect while that would be appropriate is much of the uh, information that's been gathered in the state grand wide grand jury case, all of the 81 allegations of white collar uh, fraud and other crimes, uh, drugs and the, and the like that's been gathered against Mr. Murdoch over the course of that long investigation. A lot of that uh, pro uh, provides the background and the motive for what happened on June 7th, 2021. So that, that evidence blends together and it would be appropriate for there to be a global protective order protecting everything related to this case. It is significant that Creighton Waters is saying that the motive for the double homicide is directly linked to the other financial crimes. That is something that we have never officially heard before. On the other hand, we understand that this is a criminal enterprise and the releasing of information can be dangerous in cases like this. But the motive is important. If Alec is going to be told what the state thinks his motive is, then the public should be told of that as well. And it is also significant that Creighton Waters appear to be completely on the same side as Harputlian, as if they've been planning this little duet for months. Secondly, we propose that um, all motions in this matter, either followed by the state or by us, be sealed um, and subject to a motion by either party to unseal it. Um, but that rather, again, I mean, we're, we're put in position of filing a motion on discovery to discuss what we've been given and what we haven't been given. And again, this is going to force us to disclose matters to the general public um, um, that we don't really want to discuss in public because we're trying to get a fair trial uh, for our client, not try it uh, in the media, but try it in this courtroom. And I believe uh, Mr. Waters agrees with that. Your Honor, as long as there's obviously the opportunity upon appropriate showing for motions to be made public and for hearings to be public, uh, then I think that that is appropriate. I think uh, we're not talking about hearings, we're no, talking no. about motions. Correct. Judge Newman did not appear to be amused by this gag order charade. Let's, let's address the matters thus far. 
regarding a gag order, what's your understanding as to the parameters of a gag order? I want to stop and commend Judge Clifton Newman for a second. There's a reason why he was specifically picked for this job, and it's because he is one of the most highly respected officials in the South Carolina justice system. I said this on Twitter last night, but Liz and I have talked to several attorneys, prosecutors, and law enforcement officers about Judge Newman, and we haven't heard anyone say anything bad about him. He is known for being fair and an advocate for transparency. It is not surprising that he hesitated about this gag order. And you're right, we would agree. We're talking about extrajudicial statements, and I'm not here, and, and, and I want to make it clear, there's no indication whatsoever that Mr. Waters has in any way made any extrajudicial statements part of the day. But anyone that reads this constant churning out there, it would appear somebody is. It's not him. As far as I know, none of his agents. But we want, if, if that's violated, we'd like to be able to come before the court and have the court inquire how this material fact got out um, to see if sanctions are necessary. So to be a gag order is to any extrajudicial statement. Here, Dick Harputlian is saying that he is concerned about the amount of media leaks in the case tainting a jury pool. But there are a couple things that we need to talk about on this. First of all, there has been an information void in this case from the beginning, just like it was so hard to get information in the boat crash case. SLED was almost never forthcoming with official information on the double homicide, and it was our job as a local media to inform the public about what was going on. Remember, people like the boat crash victims were being targeted in the media and online as potential suspects in this case. That is dangerous. And even more dangerous, for several months after the murders, Alec Murdoch was free to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. If the evidence was pointing toward him all along, wouldn't they have wanted to get him behind bars last summer? Think about this. He's accused of killing his wife and son. I don't care if that's a targeted murder. That is a sign of a very dangerous human being. So it was our obligation as members of the press to release the information that we had about Alec Murdoch in this case. And we will never know where this case would be if it didn't get so much international attention. Or how long it would have taken them to arrest Alec if he didn't have a little shooting incident. Every piece of information that was leaked to us was approved by our sources who assured us it wouldn't compromise the case. Waters and Harputlian kept saying they didn't want media leaks in the case to taint a jury pool. But you know what stops information leaks? Releasing information to the public. Again, the justice system is on trial here. A former public official is on trial here. We do not know how deep this corruption goes in this case. This isn't a typical case, and the Murdoch camp is not your typical defense team. Creighton Waters should realize that. And finally, I just have to say this. The idea of ever getting a completely impartial jury in the age of the internet and social media is nearly impossible. Those days are over, and it's time that our criminal justice system starts recognizing that and figuring out other ways for a fair trial. And we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Murdoch Murders podcast, the show that started it all. 
These 93 episodes will take you on a journey of twists and turns, ups and downs, tears and belly laughs. In this first podcast, we expose the truth wherever it leads, give voice to victims, and get the story straight. We continue this mission with our newest evolution, True Sunlight. Luna Shark's True Sunlight podcast is the antithesis of true crime. True Sunlight values accuracy over access journalism. True Sunlight is shed with empathy, not exploitation. True Sunlight is the intersection of journalism, true crime, and systemic corruption. We continue to shed light on Stephen Smith's case and Alex Murdoch's co-conspirators. But also, we like to take deep dives into other cases around the country. True Sunlight empowers listeners to understand their legal and judicial systems with our unique brand of pesky journalism. Listen to True Sunlight wherever you get your podcast, or visit truesunlight.com to learn more. Uh, and again, the state wants very much this case to be tried fairly and appropriately in a court of law. Uh, I will say this, just because information does make it into the media does not mean that it necessarily came from law enforcement or prosecutorial sources. Uh, While Creighton Waters put Judge Newman in a very tough position by agreeing with the defense, Newman still didn't seem to be going along to get along. I just want to clearly understand that it's a public matter for a, with a public trial and uh, certainly matters that need to be sealed can be sealed uh, to preserve the rights of all parties to a fair and impartial trial. Uh, and the court understands that, but at the same time, I want it clear that we will not have any private motion hearings. Uh, public matters will be public. We really hope that Creighton rethinks his position on this. We absolutely respect the need to be careful with this case, and we certainly don't want the other investigations to be jeopardized. But the AG's office and SLED have said absolutely nothing about the case as it is. For 13 months, they've allowed theories to circulate that the boat crash victims or the families of Gloria Satterfield and Stephen Smith might have had something to do with this. The AG's office did nothing to publicly clear their names, and that is not okay. To that end, by withholding information, they are also creating a vacuum that can be filled by Alec Murdoch's team, which, by the way, includes a public relations firm. Would the gag order apply to them and anyone hired by them to promote the Murdochs online or otherwise? The Murdoch team has already painted SLED and the AG's office as incompetent and their investigation as bumbling. By battening down the hatches, it feels like they're fine with that image. Next, Harputlian moved on to his next request, asking for a speedy trial. This will be interesting. No one seems to think Murdoch is going to get a particularly speedy trial. There's a six and a half year backlog in the 14th Circuit. There are other defendants ahead of Murdoch who would like speedy trials as well. And this just seems like trickery on Harputlian's part to force the AG's office into presenting a hastily put together case, even though we think the AG's office is probably ready to go given it's been over a year. It also seems like a ploy to convince Judge Newman, a judge who is pro-transparent, to grant a gag order, thinking it wouldn't be for the long term. Um, and that is, we, make, we filed uh, a motion for speedy trial. Um, we note that there are two terms here, one in um, October and one in November. 
Um, and we'd like to go ahead and get this matter before Collins County jury as quickly as possible. Uh, Mr. Murdoch does this for a number of reasons. One, as you've heard, he believes he's innocent. Of hers, he's innocent. And two, he believes that the killer or killers are still at large and this would allow Swag to put this behind him and go look for the real killers. Notice how Dick Harpootlian is not saying his client is innocent. He is saying that his client believes that he is innocent. Seems like Dick is biting off more than he can chew here. From what we understand, it's unusual for a defense attorney to say the word innocent when the threshold they're usually aiming for is not that. Their job is not to prove innocence, but to point out where they think the state has not made its case beyond a reasonable doubt. It'll be interesting to see how Dick's bluster comes back to haunt him now that he's proclaimed in open court that not only can the state not prove Alec did this, Alec didn't do it. It's a bold thing for a man who hasn't seen all the evidence to say. Then Waters said what many of us were thinking that this is premature considering the fact that the defense hasn't even seen the discovery in the case. Preparing for a murder trial in a few months is something that no defense attorney wants. Also, Harpootlian has another murder trial in January, which is right around the time that they are suggesting to have Alec Murdoch's trial. I'm hesitant to set a, a specific term already because there is a very extensive discovery and probably a number of matters that will be needed to address. That could work out. I just think it's a little premature to say definitely that's the term we should schedule. However, the state is absolutely in favor. The evidence in this case is substantial, and it all points back to Alec Murdoch. There's forensic evidence as well as uh, all other evidence of his guilt of these murders, and so the state is ready and willing to move this matter forward as expeditiously as could be reasonably done. Then Harpootlian fired back at Waters and insulted both the Attorney General's office and SLED even though he hasn't seen the discovery in the case. Our response to that is, he's wrong. Uh, and that's why a jury will sit in that jury box. Is it that jury box? That jury box. One of those, that, that's the grand jury box? No. Okay. Old-timey courthouse, I forget which side we go with. That jury box right there. Uh, hopefully within 90 to 120 days, and decide whether that is substantial evidence. Dick's joke was not particularly funny, but his adoring fans in the media box seemed to think it was. Harpootlian started to list off potential judges for this hypothetical trial. We're not sure if he was doing this to show Judge Newman that he would try this case sooner if it weren't for the booked docket this fall, or if he was sending a message to everyone that Newman might not be the judge in the case moving forward, which we'll tackle on another day. But here's the odd thing. He mentioned Judge Mullen, which... Why bring up the name of someone who might be tied to Murdoch's case? He said the trial couldn't happen in October because that's her month to preside over general sessions and she had recused herself. Yeah, she recused herself. There are so many questions about what role her close relationship with Alec might have played in all of this. And it's possible she's under investigation for that alleged role. It's not a good look for Dick to remind us just how deep the public corruption goes in this case. Right now, there's an October term with Judge Mullen, and she's refused herself, and November term with Goldsmith, uh, Brooks Goldsmith in Lancaster County. Those are already set. Um, I don't know that we need to get into that today, but we are going to be pressing for a, a trial as quickly as possible. In that vein, last week we served a discovery motion on the state. They have 30 days under the rules to respond. But this matter has been under investigation for a year and a half. It may be extensive, but it ought to be easily accessible and we ought to be able to get that in two and a half weeks and begin the process of coming through it ourselves. 
Remember, Newman was selected by the South Carolina Supreme Court to see all matters related to the Murdoch case. And here, Dick Harpootlian is basically planting his flag and saying, look, we don't need you, Judge Newman, and we do need this gag order. And don't worry, it won't go on for years because the trial is going to happen in a few months. And before concluding the hearing, Newman basically said, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Well, the defendant has a constitutional right to a speedy trial. Uh, that being said, however, I am totally unaware of the status of the docket here in Colleton County. I do not know if the um, solicitor's office for this circuit already has day certain trials scheduled or, or what other matters uh, that uh, currently exist that might be scheduled already or anticipated by, or whether a special term of court might become necessary to try this case. The hearing wrapped up in about 20 minutes. And following that hearing, Harpootlian and Griffin walked past a pool of microphones where two dozen news reporters were waiting for a press conference. When a reporter asked Harpootlian for comment, he said, I'm gagged. But the thing is... He wasn't gagged. Dick gagged himself. Newman has not ruled on a gag order. This was Harpootlian creating an illusion to the media, who have proved to be vastly misinformed in this case, sending a message that he got his way and the gag order was in effect. Harpootlian was clear in the hearing. He desperately wants that gag order. The question is why? What's the move here? This was bothering me. And suddenly today, after the hearing, it dawned on me. This all comes back to the money. Okay, so we have heard from several sources that Ellick's family members have said that they are choosing to support Ellick until evidence in the double homicide case shows them otherwise. And the family support matters because someone is paying the bills for Dick and Jim's expensive representation, which we would anticipate costing well over a million dollars at this point. This is serious money we are talking about. And remember, in the jailhouse phone calls, the ones that exposed several lies from the Murdoch team indicated that John Marvin was handling the family's finances and Dick and Jim were definitely getting paid. Remember this? And hopefully Jim's supposed to come by and meet with him. I'm trying to get the finances straight with them, and and I got to talk to John and see um, whether we're gonna do a loan, and then I'm gonna pay it back out of an account later, or we're gonna have a letter from a, a, an opinion from a lawyer who does retirement accounts that rolling it over. Because I mean, if you pay interest on something for Let's see, six years, and you could end up being more than the penalty. But we got to make sure the penalty doesn't open it up to creditors. I mean, you're going right. to need that money. We also know from the jailhouse phone calls that the only people besides Dick and Jim who are speaking to Alec right now are his family members. At least we think. Since it seems like he's trying to use three-way calls, it's hard to know who he's actually talking to, and we'll get into that in another episode. We also know there is a significant amount of money, likely in the millions, in Randolph and Big Buster's trust funds. 
And we know that Alec Murdoch's money is locked up in the receivership to protect it for victims who have ongoing lawsuits against the Murdochs. So it isn't a far-fetched conclusion to say that most likely Dick and Jim are somehow getting paid by the Murdoch family. It also isn't far-fetched to believe that if the family saw evidence convincing them that Ellie killed their family members, Maggie and Paul, that they could take a big step backward and stop all support, including financial. If Creighton Waters decided to present convincing evidence in court today, such as GPS data, high-velocity impact spatter, and text messages, the gravy train providing Ellick's expensive defense team might get cut off, and the Bulldogs do not want to risk that. But instead, Waters folded, really for the first time in this case. The state had an opportunity on Wednesday to make this a new day in South Carolina, showing everyone that our system would be transparent and just. They had the opportunity to explain what evidence they had against Alec Murdoch in the double homicide, and through their statement, which we will talk about in another episode, But instead of revealing details in the investigation that took 13 months and God knows how many taxpayer dollars, they chose to say almost nothing. Several people on Twitter are arguing that the prosecution did not fold, that they are just protecting their case. Normally, I am very understanding when it comes to prosecutors protecting information for the sake of their case. But after investigating this case and this family and watching how they thrive in the darkness and have lurked in the shadows for years, and so many people have been hurt, it is time for the Attorney General's office to take a stand to fight for transparency, to ensure the public that they have arrested the right guy in this horrific crime. Alec Murdoch is likely going to jail for the rest of his life. The financial crimes alone, with a clear paper trail of evidence, are enough to do that. In this case, in this case only, the prosecution should be most concerned about the South Carolina taxpayers who have lost faith in the entire system. They should be fighting for them. They should be fighting for transparency. And if they don't, we will. And we'll be right back. Now I want to share some positive news from this week. On Sunday, July 17th, 2022, Friends, family, and supporters rallied around the Smith family to celebrate a new day in Hampton, South Carolina, marked by a beautiful new headstone honoring Stephen Smith's legacy. What I love about the headstone is that it is so huge and so unique and so hard to miss and very much visible from Sandy Run Road, the same road where Stephen Smith was found murdered in 2015. We know people in Hampton County know who killed Stephen Smith. Now, there is a beautiful and unmistakable headstone on the edge of the Gooding Cemetery that will serve as a reminder for those who have information and who have been too scared all these years to go to police. I hope this headstone serves as a monument, showing everyone that this is a new day in Hampton County, that now is Stephen's time for justice and that there are so many of us who will continue to fight for him until we get answers. I was honored to speak at the ceremony and I will share a clip from my speech. 
I didn't know Stephen personally, but over the last three years, I have made a bond with his mother, Sandy, and learned so much about who he was and what he wanted to be. As Sandy and I have laughed and cried over the last three years, I have been so fortunate to learn about her son. Stephen was kind, he was funny, he was generous. He wanted to help people. Stephen was proud of who he was and those around him were proud of him too. Stephen inspired others to be themselves and continues to do that with his memory. After all these years, Sandy has taught me to always hold on to hope and love, even when that's all you have. But also, Sandy has taught me to never give up on what's right. We will be making noise and demanding justice until we have answers about why Stephen is no longer with us. We know that someone has information and now that the tides of justice in Hampton are changing, that someone will come forward with evidence. But I am here today to celebrate Stephen's life, and we celebrate that hope and love that has kept Sandy in her relentless pursuit of justice. We are here to stand with Sandy, and we are here to stand with Stephen. Thank you. After the speech, I hugged Sandy Smith tight, and I couldn't help but weep for her. It's Stephen's time, Sandy said softly in my ear. And it is Stephen's time. His family has waited seven years for justice. And as Smith family attorney Mike Hemlip said Sunday, we are all done being sad. Now is the time to get angry. Because people like the Smiths shouldn't have to wait seven years to get justice. I, I didn't know Stephen Smith. But I knew Stephen Smith. There are 168,000 LGBT people in South Carolina. Roughly 10% of the millennials identify as LGBT. There are roughly 28,000 teenagers in South Carolina who identify as LGBT. Bright, young, talented, ambitious, charismatic, and loved. So I didn't know Stephen Smith, but I know Stephen so many like him. Those young gay South Carolinians, 28,000 of them, the statistics about them are horrific. Huge rates of suicide, homelessness, domestic violence, sexual assault. In 2018, the HRC did the largest study about LGBT teens that has ever been done and discovered that 95% of them on a regular basis, cannot sleep because of fear and anxiety. 95% and 20%, one out of five, in the past year, prior to the study, was forced into a sex act by an adult. The statistics about LGBT teens are horrific. But that wasn't Stephen's story. That wasn't his story. Mike's speech in the pouring rain, in the middle of a low country cemetery, was so powerful and necessary. Stephen, to me, is a hero. He's a role model. He had the ability to be a mentor for other people. His passion for healthcare, his desire to be a nurse and then one day a doctor. Imagine what kind of doctor he would have been. 
the gatekeeper. But he's not. Because someone decided to bash his head in. Mike Hemlip then said what many people have said to me whenever I mention the fact that Stephen was gay, that we don't know for sure that it had to do with his death. I, I know what you're thinking. You're going, Mike, come on. You don't know what happened to Stephen. You don't know why he died. But here's what I'm here to tell you today. There are 28,000 gay teenagers in South Carolina who know exactly why he died. And I'm going to tell you, I know exactly why he died. Maybe I'm wrong. The men and women of SLED are working tirelessly to get us answers, and we cannot thank them more. But I'll tell you this, don't bet against me. I think I'm right. I wouldn't bet against him either. I think he is right. Mike is angry, and I am angry too. More people need to be angry about what happened to Stephen. And yet the stakeholders of Hampton County were absolutely satisfied with the fact that Stephen Smith was thrown in the road like garbage and all they did was pick him up and throw him away. And that is all they did. Today, when you talk to this family and when you talk to Sandy, they are deserving of your empathy. They're deserving of your sympathy. They're deserving of you showing you love them. You're, they're deserving of them seeing your sadness. But when you leave and get in your car, I don't want you sad anymore. It's time to get angry. It's time to get answers. It's time to get solutions. I didn't know Stephen Smith, but I've known lots of Stephen Smith. I was a Stephen Smith. You know Stephen Smith. He was a hero. Was a fallen warrior against forces that want him and other LGBT teens of South Carolina and America to be extinct. I don't honor Stephen by being sad. The advances of the gay community, which started at Stonewall, there was nobody at Stonewall who was sad. They took action. Sadness doesn't lead to action. So I want to honor Stephen. And I want you to honor Stephen. And the way we do that is we get mad. We are begging you, if you have any tips, big or small, that could help SLED solve Stephen Smith's case, please call Crime Stoppers of the Low Country. You can do this anonymously at 843-554-1111 or their website at 843-554-1111.com. I will be posting about Stephen Smith on my personal social media accounts every single day until justice is served. So be sure to follow me and share those posts as we continue to fight to get the word out and get Stephen's case solved. Stay tuned. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created by me, Manny Matney, and my fiancé, David Moses. Our executive editor is Liz Farrell. Produced by... Luna Shark Productions.